Um, this event uh, marks the end of three years of activity of the Support Centre for Open Resources in, in Education, uh, which was funded by HEFSI as part of uh, the Higher Education Shared Solutions Programme at the University, which also included as its other main element uh, back on course, uh, which uh, uh, has been providing help and assistance to students who drop out of full-time higher education anywhere in England. Um, SCORE set out to do two things, basically. Uh, to build awareness of the benefits of open education resources in higher education, uh, and secondly, to expand and strengthen the community of OER practitioners in HR, to build activity, to extend and increase the, the amount of OER activity. And it's done uh, a range of things. We've run lots of workshops um, the vast majority of them have been recorded and are, uh, can be accessed, and uh, we found that uh, many more people have attended our workshops virtually than, than in the flesh, but uh, uh, if you look at the events showcase on the uh, SCORE website, uh, you'll be able to, to find them, and that website will continue for a couple of years at least. Uh, we've run two major conferences um, OER 11 um, in uh, Manchester, uh, which uh, um, focused, well, was primarily uh, participants from the UK, and then Cambridge 2012, which I know uh, quite a few of you in this room were, were at, um, which was joint with the Open Courseware uh, Consortium, uh, and that was a larger event because it effectively combined our conference uh, with their annual conference. We've published quite a lot of open education resources and the uh, drive behind this was to try and uh, publish based on an assessment of the needs of the sector rather than the wishes of the, uh, the authors, if you see what I mean. And, and uh, uh, a couple, uh, like uh, one and a half thousand hours of OER were published as part of that. But we've also, and you'll hear a bit more about this, um, put OER into practice uh, to meet a, a real need. And you'll, you'll hear about that in a minute, our two uh, microsites, our OER-fueled websites, ready to research and digital scholarship, and, and, and that's coming next. Um, we've also uh, trained some 58 short-term fellowships. This, this is a program designed particularly for those new to open education resources, and uh, we've, we've had a number of, of cohorts uh, come through. A number of short-term fellows are, are here today, I know. Um, and what's been particularly gratifying has been uh, when we've gone back after six months to say, okay, what are you now doing differently as, as a result of what you uh, learnt uh, in the uh, intensive week you, you spent on the fellowship? Uh, a significant proportion, indeed the majority, have made some major change or other, like uh, their, their practice in terms of their, their professional life has changed or they've got involved in a new project or, or, or some such. Um, we've also worked with 31 score fellows, and I, I, I always feel... I mean, my, my feeling is that the SCORE fellows are the glory of SCORE. They are, they are the, the uh, greatest manifestation 
of uh, what the centre's been, been all, all about. And what we have for you this afternoon is a packed programme, I have to say packed, uh, in which you will hear from most of the, the fellows working, uh, presenting in different thematic areas on the work they've been engaged in and the insights they've learned. And I th we've, we've never done this before, so I think it's going to be really fascinating seeing it all, all come together uh, here. Um, and uh, I, I must just warn you in advance, because we have so many people, there's a type timetable, and I may cut people off just as you think they're getting interesting, uh, for which I apologize in advance. Hopefully it won't happen, but, but it, it, it may do, because uh, they've, they've all been asked to uh, fit a tiny, tiny time slot. And uh, finally, opened.ac.uk is the place to go to uh, find out more about uh, SCORE and, and, and what it's been doing and to access all the many resources that uh, have been uh, accumulated. So, without more ado, as they, they say, if this was snooker, I'd be saying, uh, let's, without more ado, let's have the boys on the bays. Uh, but this isn't snooker, so without more ado, let's have the first presenters at the podium. Thank you. Hello, everybody. I'm Robin Goodfellow from the Open University. This is Bea de los Arcos from the Open University. You're looking at one website from two sites that we have created as gateways to the fast-growing world of open educational resources. These are multimedia materials for you to use for self-study. They've been created by experts in universities and training companies around the world, and they're completely free for you to use as you wish. They're Open Educational Resources, or OERs. They've been created particularly for research students, for students who are learning to use digital technologies as part of their study, digital students or digital scholars, for teachers who are working with students in colleges or universities um, around the world. They're designed for you, the user, Right, so how do the websites work? What you see is on the home page, on the right-hand side, you have a list of learning topics. So the idea is that you have a look at those topics and select one or the one that you think you're most interested in. On the topics page, the first thing you're going to see is a brief description of the, of, at the top of what the topic covers and a list of resources. To help you decide which resource you want to click on next, uh, what you have is a, a little icon that shows roughly how long it's going to take you to go through that particular resource. And also another icon that tells you what media, what type of media, uh, what type of media it is. So if it is mainly text or maybe if it is a video, that you can play or an interactive learning object or maybe some audio material that you, that you can listen to. Uh, there are also the stars, which will show you how other users have, how highly they have raised this, this particular resource. When you click 
on the resource you want to you want to visit, you have some extra information. You're going to have some information about who created the resource, um, it, the abstract that tells you a little bit more of what it is that you're going to find when you click on that resource, um, some use notes and the type of license it has been released under. At the very top, you have the option to open the resource in a separate window or to open the resource as a visit and rate this resource. When you do that, what you have is you have access to the resource itself. You can work through that resource as, as you please, but at the top, you will see how there is a banner, and that banner will invite you to raise it and to leave a comment if you wish to do so. And by rating the resources and by leaving comments, you can contribute to the OER community's evaluation of the resource. By posting a comment and giving your opinion, you'll help potential other users to decide if it is going to be of value to them. Look on the home page of either of these two sites for more information about why it's good to rate resources and what to think about before you decide to follow one of the links, why we value your comments, and what OERs are all about. Look under the About Us tab for more information on how we built the sites and for the links to each of them. We hope that you will enjoy a productive time exploring the Ready to Research and Digital Scholarship websites. Can we just explain that we've just done a little presentation that's going to go on the websites themselves, so we weren't really talking to you, we were talking to potential users, in case you felt that was slightly odd. We have a minute if anybody wants us to ask questions. Anybody want to ask us anything about these sites? No. Can I tell you a little bit of what, what actually you're going to find there? There is, for ready to research, there's roughly 150 hours of, of study time, which I think is, is quite, quite, quite an achievement. And in digital scholarship, you have roughly around 40 hours, maybe a little bit less of study time. Um, roughly, we say that 70 to 80 percent of the material you find there is, has been released under a Creative Commons license. Um, but our colleagues, you know, we have Therese and Jackie Carter and, and, and Richard, you'll see how when we actually try to go looking for resources, because that's what we, we have to do, you know, just trying to collect these resources from around the world, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, actually, because, because of different things, but especially finding, ideally, stuff that was released under a Creative Commons license, um, that wasn't so easy. So, yeah. I don't know if you have any questions in particular. Um, we used um, students, research students from here and from Leicester um, to evaluate um, the, the sites. I don't know if any of the consultants who selected the material involved students in the selections. Therese, Richard, Jackie? No. 
No, but in a way we had, I mean, that was the intended audience. We had research students in mind. So um, when we started collecting or looking for, for resources, that's, you know, you were thinking basically from, from a student point of view and especially also thinking of non-UK students, especially for ready to research. So non-UK students who want to come to the UK to do, to do research studies, postgraduate studies. Thank you. I'm sorry, it's all going to be fairly, fairly quick far, but uh, I mean, I think what's particularly interesting about that was it was using OER in anger to meet a different need, and the experience itself, I, I know, is, is being written up and will be disseminated as well as the product itself, which is live as of now, is it? Has it gone live? Well, no, no, this is a soft launch, okay? That's, that's a polite way of saying it. Last minute, yes, uh, tweaks to it, but it's uh, very close to, uh, to going live. Um, next up, the next theme is OER use and uh, reuse, and I think we have four of our fellows uh, here for that. Chris, Chris follows Anna Grzynska, Ming-Ni, and Joanna Wilde. So they're going to do a foursome. Thank you. Hello. We're organized. Um, so, as uh, Jonathan introduced us all, I'll, I'll skip that section. Uh, we're, we're basically, and our names are there. So, uh, we are the uh, use and reuse uh, group. So, uh, and these were our key findings from the, the four um, fellows that worked together. Um, and each one of us is going to introduce our own section. So, I'll, I'll as our t time is limited, I'll launch straight into my first section, um, which I'm at the University of the Arts London, so practice-based OER, um, uh, quite tricky, uh, tricky area. So I'll imagine that all, all you don't exist, and I'm actually talking to a bunch of academics and technicians and students from a practice-based art school. Um, and the, the instant uh, reaction is, what are you talking about? Uh, actually, one person said, you make me feel sick when I hear you talk. <laughs> so, and what he meant was uh, this whole digital thing, uh, when he hears anything about digital, he feels physically sick. <laughs> it was not a review of my presentation. <laughs> so, so th th this was the, the um, sort of position we're starting from in, in, in regards to use and reuse. OER, what's OER? In a way, chuck all that out the window and uh, get real and talk about Digital literacy is, again, what does that mean? Shut that out the window. So it, just explore what digital means, really. So uh, we sort of started to break this down, or, or I did during my fellowship, um, in regards to uh, practice, and, and just started thinking about, well, how does it benefit practice? How does it impact on practice? So if you think of it in terms of open practice, uh, you've got skills here, uh, which are the kind of things you can go and get quite easily. Um, and then you've got the other, other bit, which is open educational practice, which is a bit more difficult to do. You actually have to do it. Uh, and this in-between section where you need this hand-holding uh, to get you into use and reuse. Um, so I used um, uh, a grassroots-formed uh, OER site, which came out of non-institutional uh, uh, web space to share open educational resources. 
And this is the kind of step from, from um, focus groups we did, the kind of steps where, where people are. So you've got the, the uh, totally unaware, and then you've got the, the person that has become aware through observation, through standing on the perimeter. Uh, and then you've got the start of the person that's just starting to explore it, maybe making a resource and uploading it. And then you've got your resident. And you need this ecosystem in order for the whole thing to survive. Because um, we, we all learn from each other and we learn by doing. So... Um, also, the infrastructure of institutional, we looked at that we need this combination of, of voluntary, this, this sort of aspect of embedded practice that doesn't come through funding, um, that actually comes through uh, doing what you do um, and integrating it into what you do. But you also do need that institutional bit in order to uh, make it work. And this is where the projects like SCORE come in, where funded projects that can support that embedded practice. Uh, just as a final uh, section to that, in regards to looking at how the two institutional and uh, sort of grassroots work together, um, you're also looking at a lot of OER going off into, into third-party um, applications and, and uh, commercial platforms at the moment. And I think it's really important that institutions start to think about their rich media content hosting uh, internally. Okay, well, I'll stop there and pass on to the next section. Thank you. Okay, so uh, my project looked at uh, yet another aspect of OER use and reuse, and something that uh, throughout my work uh, seems to uh, be emerging as somewhat as an, of an elephant in the room, uh, just as uh, when it comes to uh, OER uh, production and uh, creation uh, for a number of academics, copyright suddenly becomes an issue, uh, whereas before you could very uh, happily operate on the principle of, well, it doesn't matter, it's for educational use. Uh, so my interest in the area of accessibility understood uh, as the ability of uh, online web-based resources to be uh, accessed, viewed, navigated, used, etc., by others, uh, stemmed from that uh, clash between the ethos of open education uh, and open access, which emphasised the need to, to uh, remove educational barriers, uh, and the very common academic practice, which was to... Uh, totally ignore any issues related to accessibility uh, and, uh, and essentially uh, for, for the most part uh, hope for the, uh, for the best. So the project looked at uh, specifically at the UK OER uh, program uh, and, and focused on barriers and enablers to uh, embedding accessibility within OERs and, and some of the particular challenges that these resources uh, present. So I started by having a look at what emerged from the pilot phase and the, and the second phase of the Open Educational Resources uh, Program uh, and uh, compared and contrasted the, both the project plans and, and uh, final reports, uh, which made for fascinating uh, reading uh, because accessibility was very often positioned in the, uh, in the realm of uh, good intentions uh, and... Uh, it was, it was quite interesting, especially if you compared the uh, project plan and the uh, final report. Uh, 
what came across uh, was very often the message along the lines of we had all the best intentions uh, in the world, but we ran out of time, resources, uh, or we realized only at the very end uh, of the uh, process of uh, OER uh, creation that we should have embedded accessibility. So there was a lot of costly retrofitting going on. Uh, and, and the theme of lack of resources uh, came, uh, came across uh, these reports uh, very often. So the scoping exercise was then followed up by interviews with experts in the field of open education resources and, uh, and accessibility. Uh, and the aim of, of and, and also a survey which was uh, sent uh, round uh, practitioners in uh, mostly within uh, higher education institutions in the uh, in the UK uh, and the idea behind this was to look at uh, ways and uh, strategies uh, in which uh, the issues identified in the uh, scoping exercise uh, could be uh, could be addressed uh, so what came across really strongly is, first of all, uh, the need to uh, emphasize the fact that there's a huge number of uh, simple fixes uh, that could help practitioners avoid having to uh, retrofit their resources. Uh, there's a need to address the accessibility features of platforms where OERs are deposited because past the point of deposit, uh, you know, the resource could be the most accessible resource in the world, but past the point of uh, deposit, uh, the creator is no longer uh, in control. And, and finally, uh, what was emphasized time and again is that it's very difficult currently to locate resources that are accessible, so uh, appropriate uh, and accurate metadata are uh, crucial. And uh, finally, uh, just as the reports identified lack of support and resources as a key issue, uh, the, both the survey and the, and the interviews uh, emphasized that there is a need to provide adequate support and, and that really accessibility issues are quite complex and not just a matter of uh, technology and should not be discussed in isolation from other issues and finally, that this is something that should be explicitly uh, addressed within UK OER projects uh, and, and maybe copyright is an area where some lessons could be borrowed. And uh, that leads us on to the next project. <laughs> um, the name of my project is called The Evolution of OER, and the aim is to develop a deeper understanding of the reuse of OER by academics in higher education institutions. So my project uh, captures examples of reuse and develops patterns of reuse, also identifies uh, drivers and barriers faced by academics in reusing OER. Uh, one of the key outcomes from my project is this OER-enhanced curriculum, uh, which maps curriculum design against the OER design and captures four different types of enhancement which can be achieved during curriculum design and delivery stages. Um, the project also captures examples of uh, reuse, uh, which illustrate each type of um, uh, enhancement. So, for instance, uh, 
the bottom left quadrant, uh, rapid enhancement constitutes reusing OERs as is uh, with minimum uh, cost during the curriculum delivery stage uh, in the short term. So an example of rapid enhancement is, uh, for example, some academics using YouTube videos or TV documentaries uh, to uh, update and maintain the currency of their teaching materials. So those videos and TV programs were usually embedded in the teaching material, used and played during a particular teaching session and to generate student discussion. Uh, well, uh, the, top, the top right quadrant, strategic enhancement, uh, requires significant effort in embedding reused OER in curriculum design uh, in a very structured way and for long-term enhancement. An example is the development of an open course or an open textbook uh, by uh, reusing a range of different types of open resources. I can give you an example. So um, a university in Malawi developed a, a textbook on communication skills by reusing a range of open resources. And this textbook has been uh, um, formally embedded in the institution's curriculum and has been uh, subsequently uh, repurposed and adapted by another university in Nigeria for the development of their own uh, communications textbook and for the trade union leaders. So the new version of textbook includes sections taken from the original textbook and reused as they are. Uh, they have sections adapted from the original textbook, for example, replacing the examples with trade union-specific scenarios and examples, and also include uh, new materials adapted from uh, other open resources. So this OER-enhanced curriculum has been formally embedded in the uh, Carpathian Learning Design Workshop uh, used and developed by Leicester University. So we use this uh, uh, framework for the participants to map their current uh, OER activities onto uh, uh, different quadrants and also promote, promote them to think about uh, the kind of support they might need from the institution uh, in terms of um, enabling them to uh, use um, OERs in a more structured, for more structured design and for long-term enhancement. Um, my project also identifies a number of drivers and barriers for reuse, uh, which will have an impact on the uh, sustainability of the uh, uh, OER use and reuse in the long term. So the key message from my project is the development of digital literacies and uh, skills related to open practices in staff is critical for the OER to be taken uh, at an institutional level. So this needs to be addressed through institutional strategy and policy for the provision of sufficient and systematic support and training for their staff members and for the development of an open culture and open practice. However, uh, there's a general lack of support to the OER uh, creators as well as reusers uh, from the uh, institution, institutional level at the moment. So, next one. And I think this is a nice transition to, to, to my study because I think that Ming's study and mine are complementary in some way because I was looking mainly into the ways in which uh, universities or 
also individual departments, uh, support staff, are trying to raise engagement uh, with OERUs among academics and how they are trying to support them. Um, well, it was mainly qualitative study, and I interviewed 18 people. Uh, Ten of them were providers of this kind of um, support initiatives or OER uh, promotional um, initiatives, and eight of them were teachers who were participating in this kind of OER training. And um, there were many, many semi-structured interviews, but I also had an activity which was really important. It was an interactive activity where I was asking um, my interviewees to describe what uh, is the optimal engagement with OER use in uh, their opinion and what are the intermediate steps that are leading to this. And in terms of providers also, what is it that they are trying to achieve with their promotional or um, engagement rising activities. And um, there is no time for me to really go into the findings. So I just will briefly tell you that they are summarized in two major themes. One of them is um, our approaches to rising engagement with OER reuse. And if I have to summarize it in one sentence, I would say that uh, most of the OER promotional activities or support activities are uh, still bottom up, but these are great initiatives and uh, people who are doing them are very enthusiastic and they have roles within the university that lend themselves into this kind of uh, promotional uh, activity because they are either learning technologists or academic librarians or staff developers. And they do recognize the need for uh, some top uh, buying from top and from the senior management, but not in terms of policies, but rather in terms of um, giving the teacher uh, this permission that it's okay in their institution to be using OERs. And the second major outcome of my study is the OER engagement ladder, because and this, this is the outcome of... Um, of the interactive activity that I was doing. And I cannot, cannot go into the detail, but um, this is a kind of a model of um, how teachers get engaged with the use of open educational resources, uh, how they get engaged and how, how this engagement move for, uh, forward, how they can take this engagement forward. So I identified uh, four steps, and there are also in between uh, turning points, major breakthroughs that can help person move from one stage to the other. Um, so I describe it all within my report. Uh, what is really important about this is that at each, each of the levels, I described what is it exactly that the academics are doing at this level, uh, what are the barriers that they might encounter, and uh, then that the engagement could fall down again, and what are the enabling factors that can help them move up the ladder, and also what are the support, uh, what is the role of support staff? How this, can this engagement be supported? And I have really here hits and tips coming from the people who are doing those promotional activities. Uh, and I think it's very useful for those who are thinking about trying to engage their academics in OER reuse to, to browse the, through those very, very uh, valuable hits and tips. Thank you. I think I'll... That's all from OER reuse and use. What perfect timing. <laughs> that is fantastic. Thank you very much.
Um, I'm going to ask you to save questions for the, the slot before tea, but everyone who you, you hear from will be available to, to question both uh, formally and uh, informally. Uh, next up, uh, we have um, uh, a group that we're looking at academic practice, and we are using a little bit of one-upmanship here with Prezi. So, what we'd like to do is underline for you. See, I did put the score uh, logo into the presentation as instructed. <laughs> <laughs> what we did, which was look at um, open, look, the use of open educational resources in uh, academic practice. So, here are the characters in our story. As you can see, Julian, who sadly cannot be with us today, um, is the oldest of our five in our group. He's tall and strong, intelligent, as well as caring, responsible and kind. And his cleverness and reliability is often noted. Note he's not here. He does have a, a, a feature later on, though. Dick here <laughs> has a cheeky sense of humour, but he's also dependable and kind in nature. Oh, I can vouch for that. Um, he also uses his wits in our many adventures. Georgina is fierce and headstrong. I don't know who wrote this. Uh, Wikipedia, by the way. <laughs> uh, but apparently she's very loyal to those she loves. But sometimes she's extremely stubborn and causes trouble. True. Not me, not me, obviously. No, no. But moving on, <clears throat> Anne. Well, she likes doing the domestic things like planning and organizing and preparing and keeping things where they're clean and tidy. And Timmy, of course, is the other character, so I'm moving on very quickly. <laughs> because I'm really, really sorry about that. Where I, <laughs> I'd forgotten who the other character was. This is where our adventure took place. Down there in southwest England, we had a little day trip to Exeter. Uh, we also wandered through Kingston into King's College in London, um, over to Oxford. Obviously, most of our work took place here in uh, the Open University, and then one of us went off to the Fens at one stage. So, that's the scene. So, what did we set out to do well, in our little story? Well, um, all five of us were interested in um, or had some connection with academic practice. And so we were all looking at the ways in which OERs and academic practice interacted, looking at various aspects of that. Uh, one project looked to take OER and embed it into staff development, so academic practice um, courses at, uh, that, were, that are taken by, by early career academics. Another one hoped to provide an index to um, OERs that are related to academic practice. So of, of, of all the materials that are out there, there's a fair whack that are related to academic practice. So that was, that was uh, one project. Another one was to look at policy and practice um, for creating OERs. Um, and especially in a research-led institution, which often has very different um, uh, requirements and needs. 
another project looked to integrate um, open content into um, postgraduate certificates in academic practice. So how could OERs be really, really integrated into the design um, and the development of those? And then another project looked um, really to understand how early career academics who are participating in academic practice programs um, use, implement, um, look at, and approach OERs. So we'll start with Tom or um, Julian, Julian. Julian, right? The, the reliable one. The reliable one. We can't we can't get our names straight um, in this story. <laughs> we just hope that Tom can now talk. So this may be the video that doesn't work. Um, Tom's not here today, but he sent along an avatar. Great. And so it appears that Tom's avatar has um, vanished. Hmm. Well, Tom was talking about <laughs> his project. Sadly, he cannot be he with can't us. Be, he, he can't be with be us either virtually or physically today. So we'll move on to Georgina's story, which doesn't seem to be moving now at all. But hey, yes, there it is. Right, so what did I set out to do? I was the one that... Um, volunteered to make an index of OER material that related to academic practice, and I chose to do that in the project space of lab space in the OpenLearn uh, project, get enough projects in there, of course. Um, and I uh, achieved what I set out to do. All the information is in the unit. Um, it's been available for some time now. It's been used by quite a few different people. Um, I did also include, as well as a UK-based OER, some examples of OER academic practice um, in other parts of the world as well, just by way of uh, some context and some relating some things through. But I had loads of spare time when I was doing that, so I did a few other things as well. Here's one I made earlier. Okay, a prize for who got paint-shopped or photoshopped into the photo because he didn't turn up. Oh, did I say he? Sorry, Peter. <laughs> um, so this was a book about collaborative learning 2.0. And I think Ali is here somewhere in the audience, the other author. Um, who knows where Peter is? Um, and uh, it focused on the use uh, of open educational resources as well as the, the idea of collaborative learning. But anyway, I still had more spare time. So as well as that, I also developed this little game called OERopoly where you uh, get to play the game and learn jolly lots about um, open educational resource projects uh, from across the road. Road? No, across the world even. <laughs> and um, it's been quite successful. It's been played in lots of different locations, as you can see on the screen. Barcelona, Boston, Cambridge, Leicester, Lund, Michigan, Milton Keynes and Oxted which is where I happen to live, um, and coming soon in Gothenburg in the next month or two. But moving on again, I still had a bit more spare time. <laughs> so one of the things we were asked to do as part of our fellowship was to create um, a poster representing our work. So I went back to my uh, previous life of, on the drawing board and drawing circuit diagrams and so forth. So I did a spot of visualising, which was li linking together the open educational resource projects that 
JISC have funded in the last couple of years that relates to academic practice, so the open materials for accredited courses. Moving on, there's Jane's OER story. Bet this doesn't but, yeah, work Yeah, bet this either. one won't work either. Right, and it does also feature Hillary. Right, fingers crossed this time. Nothing happens. Hmm. It's a shame as well because um, Jane's got quite a good story. She's got a very good story. Hey, Melissa, you know what's going to happen next? <laughs> <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Something's there. Something's there. Okay, so Melissa was looking at um, issues and concerns and the motivation and learning needs when creating uh, and reusing OER in a research-led institution, so that was slightly different, uh, different focus. Um, and obviously, as you know, she's uh, based in Oxford, and uh, as an institution, they've actually established quite a few processes now for their academics to uh, capture their research presentations. I hope this one isn't being captured, is it? It is. <laughs> Great. Um, uh, as OER and uh, with a minimal effort. And uh, she and her colleagues have disseminated this to quite a, a wide uh, higher education audience as an example of best practice, which possibly is not what we're doing currently in terms of the technology. We will see if you appear on the screen. No. No, this wasn't going to work, was it? As Gabe says, it's a real shame because um, a little bit like uh, Robin and... Um, Bayer earlier, uh, Jane had actually put together a presentation all about her project, which she's actually now got, uh, or is using rather, in the postgraduate certificate in Kingston, which uh, is really very useful. So, over to Gabe. Ah, oh, thank you very story. much. Um, so, uh, my project, I'll stand over here. Um, my project was um, looking at uh, how early career academics might um, approach the use of OERs. And in particular, I was... I was really interested in um, the early career academics who participate in these academic practice um, programs, so their postgraduate certificates, um, usually. So master's level, sometimes kind of level six undergraduate. Um, programs that um, are required for early career academics by the HEA and um, purport to make them kind of better teachers and at least certify them as being better teachers. So my plan was um, to work with a small kind of cohort, a small sample of early career colleagues, um, and um, look at the experience that they had trying to use OERs in their own practice, and try and understand what some of the barriers were, what some of the um, what some of the things they needed were, um, whether or not we could um, success they could successfully use OERs in their um, in their practice. Um, oh, and there it is. Um, the, uh, the, I found a lot of things um, out as, as part of this process. Uh, it was, dis it was um, originally intended as a sort of a design-based um, experimentation kind of project. Um, and really, my, my goal was to sort of feed into um, the colleagues that, I, that participated in the project with me. Um, and not to sort of say, good luck, go off and find some OERs, let me know how you get on, but rather to um, hold their hand and sort of say, look, let's, let's work together. Let's look at a project that you are trying to um, uh, do in your teaching. Um, let's see what we can come up with. Um, and, um, you know, I, I don't sort of rank myself very high, but with, um, with two brains, we were not able to find much more for a lot of them than, um, than they were on their own with one brain. So... Um, so that was a bit disappointing. 
Um, we found a lot of, uh, a lot of issues that, that, that um, faced these early career um, academics as they were trying to um, integrate OERs into their practice. Um, and these are sort of outlined in more detail in the, in the um, case study and also in my project report that's, um, that's on the website. But just a few of the things, um, some of the things that have already been um, mentioned uh, previously so far today. Um, a lot of problems with metadata, a lot of problems with finding the, the, um, the particular um, uh, resources that they were after, and, um, and some interesting issues around uh, the design uh, and development of um, teaching materials. So academics, early career academics, usually the ones that have the high teaching loads, and also the ones that are sort of past a set of materials or um, a set of topics and told to teach this next term. Um, and so for, for those colleagues who are, who are sort of pressed um, in terms of time, who are getting to grips with their roles uh, as, as teaching academics and research academics, um, they were looking for, often looking for very specific kinds of resources to uh, integrate into their practice. And, uh, and as a result, they found it was very, very difficult to find exactly the things that they need. And often they just said, it's so much easier for me to just either avoid it or gloss over it or um, basically come up with the materials on my own. Um, so some very interesting um, outputs from that. But um, out of all these five projects, of which you've only heard two and a half in detail, um, what, what, what happened next? Like, uh, like any good story, um, things come together, um, and, and the narrative comes together, and then it kind of goes a goes, um, different direction. So um, Tom, um, who was at Exeter, uh, retired, um, lucky dog, and uh, went to work uh, as a volunteer with um, the YMCA in Exeter, mm -hmm. and, uh, and now um, is now working again. So apparently retirement didn't suit him. Um, but he's working um, full-time with, uh, with them. Um, Teresa joined the um, Orbit OER3 project um, and is now working also at Cambridge. Melissa continues her work on OER at Oxford. Jane, um, is, as Teresa said, is using her um, uh, lab space unit and is incorporated into the academic practice certificate, the PG uh, cert at Kingston. Um, and I'm still looking at ways um, that we can embed OER into, into academic practice, um, including the development of a new module on our postgraduate certificate in, uh, in how to, to use OER and reuse OER. And so as we draw our story to a close, um, they all taught happily ever after. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, we did, honestly, it was tested just beforehand. Um, so just bring this back up. Um, I, I can well believe you're getting a little frustrated by uh, you know, having to hold your, your questions in, but please do log them and we'll, we'll allow as much time as possible before uh, tea for going through them. Um, 
but also interesting how, you know, one or two themes starting to emerge. One thing that struck me just listening to the people so far is this semi-hidden problem of actually finding OER, and, and uh, uh, that's something that's perhaps not acknowledged much it should be. Yes, sorry, without more ado, uh, let me hand over now to Therese Bird and Gabby Whithouse, who are talking about two different ways to reach the world. Well, hello. Um, I'm Therese Bird, and my colleague, Gabby. Um, we worked on two different projects, which um, were classed together as mass models of OER. Um, coming from Leicester, where all projects used to require an animal name, um, Gabby's OERU, Open Educational Resource University project, was called Toucans, with the uh, associated wording, and mine was Spider, Sharing Practice with iTunes U Digital Educational Resources. Um, we didn't start out working together, but it does make sense that these are kind of the, the, the big picture um, kind of implementation of OER. And so if we start out with UNESCO's estimate that throughout the world there are 100 million adults who not only can't afford but are actually qualified to get into higher education, but simply can't do it because it's not accessible to them. Um, and when you think about that, that's the sort of question that OER should be able to address. And so Gabby, um, that's the question which launched Gabby's Open Educational Resource um, University project. Mine was a little bit different. Um, since my study was on iTunes U, which as you may know is the, um, the U is for university, and it's the segment of the Apple Store, um, the Apple software, which basically gives away free learning material ever since 2007. It's good to just briefly, if you've never heard the story of how it started, basically started when Steve Jobs invited into his office uh, some people from Duke University, Stanford, a couple other places, gave them each an iPod and said, here's this thing, listen to, the, to uh, the stuff on here, there could be lectures on here, what do you think you can do with this? And so it was around that time, you may recall, that Duke University started the program of giving out an iPod to every freshman, and they started incorporating this into, um, uh, into their learning in various ways, especially in languages, music, some others like that. And these universities began to realize that they needed an online way to get these resources onto the iPods, and they started working on iTunes U. Um, it started out as being a purely internal thing for those universities, and then they started to realize, hey, this is good stuff that can be shared with the world. And so um, it was launched in the United States in 2007. Um, Europe was allowed in in 2008. Um, what I did was I looked at three universities, Open University, Oxford, and Nottingham, to see how they implemented iTunes U as a kind of OER um, channel, and um, uh, attempted to apply it to my own university, which is still in progress, but it is happening and it will happen. And additionally, I, um, uh, in order to find, well, one thing about iTunes U is that though it gives out really good learning material, it's well known for not having a very good system of being able to discuss or comment amongst the learners. There's no real community in there. Um, and so how could I find out how, how people are using this? Well, I did it by um, putting a, a Twapper Keeper on Twitter to watch any time anybody tweeted using the term iTunes U, I collected it in, um, in this uh, archive, and then I was able to kind of analyze how people were using it and what their opinions were. So a little bit more on that later. Just to briefly show, um, there are 26 countries of universities now in iTunes U. 
This is just University of Salzburg. Um, there are also schools and school authorities. So a lot of the American states have their own iTunes U site. And so all the material there is for teachers and for parents and for students. And it matches their curriculum. And also um, uh, beyond campus. So um, museums, UNESCO has a site, National Geographic. Um, so what were my findings? Well, the one thing you can always say about iTunes U is that you will get a lot of downloads. Um, the Open University currently, number one, kind of vying with Stanford. I think they kind of go like this all the time. I'm sure it's over 50 million now um, since they launched in 2008. Um, University of Oxford, Oxford over 18 million. I'm sure Melissa might have an updated. Do you know any newer figure? That sounds good. <laughs> That's as of last June, uh, last, last month. Um, I knew about Coventry just in the first year that they launched in 2010. They had 2.5 million. Warwick, um, 1 million just in a little over a year. And Cranfield, just in the first 10 days, they had 5,000. And they could not get these kind of downloads from their websites alone. <clears throat> um, when I did my uh, Twitter analysis, um, the kinds of words that people were using were things like, I'm addicted to iTunes U. I love iTunes U. I'm obsessed with iTunes U. Um, I have to say, I was really surprised. And I went through and came up with the percentages. Um, basically, those kind, of, those kind of gushing remarks uh, make up this general positive 27.4%. These are people who were just enjoying um, I, then I looked at what people were using it for, and I saw about even numbers of people who wanted to learn something specific and were looking for, um, or just wanted to enjoy learning something, so a kind of edutainment. There were others who I could tell they were using uh, these materials for a class they were enrolled in. There were about five, a little over 5% actually said they were going to use this for teaching. And generally that would be, they, would, they were high school teachers and they would actually play this lecture just in the class and, have, and then discuss it with the students. Um, there was one person who said, I didn't like the quality. Uh, but generally it was all very positive. Um, and the reach is clearly international. This is uh, just a look at the, um, the Open University's implementation of iTunes U. This was last January. As you can see, I don't know if you can see it from back there, but um, the, uh, the, the one single country that downloads the most from the Open University is the United States. The second single country is the United Kingdom. And, but what's really interesting is this big green on the side, which is... I don't know, it's called the rest of the world here, but it was the countries that were just too small to stand on their own that they all grouped together. And that just shows a very interesting possibility there for reaching some of these people who cannot get, get learning any other way. This is too much to go over in a short presentation, but um, uh, you, it's, it's worth just sort of looking at the comparison between iTunes U and YouTube. Um, one of the reasons why I mentioned the beginning of iTunes U is because it's, it's interesting to think about how it started. And from what I know about how YouTube started, it was um, a kind of a random, hey, here's where you can post um, your videos. So that has continued. Um, iTunes U really does have um, a, um, it's got the reputation of having good learning materials because the universities have to choose to go into it. And basically anybody can put something on YouTube. That's actually in YouTube's favor, really, because it's, it is easier to put things out there. Um, but also because it's so easy and anybody can put it out there, that's why it's blocked in a lot of countries. It's blocked in China, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, um, many other Middle Eastern countries, whereas I'm not aware of any, play, any country that blocks iTunes U. 
Um, let's see. And just to briefly say, of course, YouTube is only video, but iTunes U is audio, video, and text. It could be PDF or eBooks. So what were my conclusions? Um, well, each of the three case cases that I looked at and my, my case studies are available on the SCORE website. I was able to write up one for each. And basically, they each implemented iTunes U differently um, based on their educational philosophy, their, their um, technological habits, their strengths, their academic strengths. So um, Nottingham was able to make use of the Echo 360 um, system, which they were... They were um, uh, audio-video recording lectures, and so that could be put onto iTunes U. Um, they, when the China was a good reason for them to begin iTunes U because they were opening um, a campus in China and needed to be able to reach it, and YouTube wouldn't do that. Um, the Open University, as I mentioned, is very successful. They don't do lectures, so they do small little research vignettes and have really been pioneering the area of e-books and Oxford um, focused a lot on audio-only lectures, just very simple, um, recorded, you know, I don't know, fairly low-tech, but at good quality, and um, very, uh, very much loved. So I found that capacity building uh, was key. Um, Oxford was, had a good example of training up, um, helping um, uh, the academics to get used to, to what, what Creative Commons was, um, how to use the equipment, not be scared of it. Um, one of my findings was that audio only is good. Um, we, it doesn't, everything doesn't have to be super flashy. It doesn't have to be uh, video. Audio is a smaller file. People can listen to it while they're driving or something. It's very useful. Um, marketing is key. In Leicester, I only began to get an audience, and things only be began to happen when the penny dropped for our marketing department that this platform could profile our university very well. So further research... Um, since last January, Apple is kind of pushing this new system of e-books and iBooks and books that are, look, look really flashy and fantastic on the iPad but can only play on the iPad. But there are ways to produce e-books that don't have to only play uh, on the iPad. And so I know Oxford is doing that for sure. They're doing them EPUB. And so that can be used to keep things more open. Um, and yet it is good to keep on top of the latest technology and, and um, experiment with the flashy iPad as well. Um, I think it, there's a lot more that needs to be looked at for iTunes U for learning. Um, the tendency has now seems to be swerving to using iTunes U mainly for marketing. And um, while it's, I'm sure it's effective in getting people to click onto your um, registration page, whether they register or not, I don't know, but uh, it does take, you through to the, take people through to your website. Still, it started out as a learning channel. It should be used as a learning channel, so there's more that could be done there. iTunes U in other countries. Um, accessibility is an issue. Is this something that's kind of only for rich folks? Well, you know, iTunes U runs on an old Windows computer as well, and it's free. It doesn't have to be the flashiest thing. And as people in um, other countries get, well, in other areas get more... Um, uh, there's more penetration of smartphones than there can be the leapfrog effect, where people with smartphones can be picking up learning material this way. And at this point, I will hand it over to Gabby. Okay, um, quite a few people in the room here have heard me talking about the OER University before. Quite a few of you have been involved in my research, either through responding to the questionnaire and this is my opportunity to say thank you very much to those of you who did. 
um, or through being involved in the interviews. And again, thank you. For those of you who are not familiar with the OER University concept, um, this is a diagram you can find on a website called wikieducator.org, and it is the website hub, the communication hub, of a network of universities, 15 at the moment, um, that are in a consortium to offer free OER-based learning with a paid-for assessment and accreditation service to primarily aiming at those 100 million learners that um, Therese showed you earlier. So what you see, I won't go into detail on this slide, but basically learners access courses based solely on OER at the bottom. Um, then they get supported in their studies via volunteers, something called Academic Volunteers International, which doesn't exist yet, but is um, going to be piloted before the end of this year, potentially. Um, then they should be able to enroll and apply for assessment on a cost recovery basis, where they pay a small fee for that. Um, and on successful completion of whatever assessment they're given, they will get an um, they will get accreditation, they will get a qualification that looks identical to the qualification they would get if they had done that course through that participating institution as a mainstream student. Um, so that's the thinking behind it. Um, a quick glance at the flags on this slide will show you that um, there's a notable absence of... Um, not only the UK, but actually the whole of Europe in the OER University. It's taken off in a big way in New Zealand, Australia, a couple of institutions in Canada, and a few in North America, in, in the US. Um, the University of South Africa has come on board, that's a big distance institution that really reaches out to the whole of Africa, and one open university in India and a recent um, new joiner is the University of the South Pacific in Fiji. Um, so those are the, there are 15 teaching institutions and two non-teaching institutions providing support, um, sponsored by the Commonwealth of Learning and UNESCO. Um, if we had time, I would ask you this question, and I'd try to elicit from you your thoughts about what what I'm trying to get at in this slide, but instead I'll have to just, um, I'll have to just tell you, which spoils the fun a little bit. But um, the OERU is not a single, its name is misleading. People think it's a university, or they think that the, the learners who study through the OERU will get a certificate that has an OERU stamp on it. That's not the case, that's not the intention. The OERU is the network, it's the web, right? Okay, and it's potentially ever-spreading as more institutions join and changing shape all the time. Um, and it's being held up by, I can ask you this, what's it being held up by? The grassroots, thank you, Therese, you've heard this before. <laughs> so, and the grassroots is the people, the academics, the, the support staff and so on in the institutions who are making this work. And, and really it is a case, from the interviews I did with them, it's a case of a lot of effort being put in by a small number of inst individuals in these institutions. So very briefly, what I did in the Toucans project was I first interviewed... Um, a selected member from each of the um, OERU network partners at the time just to establish baseline data about what they were planning to do to implement the concept. 
Then I had interviews, and all these interviews were done by Skype or Adobe Connect and so on at the oddest hours of the days and night for me because they were in New Zealand and Canada and so on. Then I had some interviews with um, what I'm calling thought leaders in, um, in the UK, primarily people in some position of senior leadership in a UK higher education, but those 11 also included two program managers from JISC who are very obviously very well informed about thinking around OERs in this country. And then there was the survey that um, was targeted at, um, repeatedly targeted, I apologize, at the SCORE fellows and um, people on every single OER list that I had access to. The responses fell under two categories. And um, the first one was a very typically English kind of way of saying it's a nice idea. Um, <laughs> it would be wrong to ignore it, and that's a quote from someone I interviewed. And, and really, there was a lot of kind of sitting on the fence, and yes, we think it's, we actually do, we think it's a great idea, but. Um, and I got the sense that from a lot of people, both the senior managers I interviewed and the people more at practitioner level who filled in the survey, there was a sense that this was a really nice philanthropic thing to be doing. And yes, we'd really like to be able to help the 100 million who don't... Okay, I'm being given the one-minute signal. Who don't have access to um, quality higher education under normal circumstances, but... And the buts, um, this was also a quote from someone in this room, actually, who I'm not allowed to name, but uh, <laughs> um, fervent OERU supporters need to soak themselves in a bath of realism. And that was kind of, and then under the negative responses were a whole range of things. There were issues, queries about quality and particularly the role of the QAA in, that would be an obstacle in enabling this collaborative provision to take place. There were concerns about whether learners would actually get the support they needed from the volunteers. There was skepticism about the philanthropic mission. Was this just post-colonialism and was this just imposing Western academic traditions on the developing world and so on? So the debate is still ongoing. Um, some of the other issues that were of concern there, the true cost was of particular concern. People either looked at the cost of creating and maintaining OERs as being very expensive, or they talked about the cost of managing credit transfer between institutions in the network as being a huge barrier. Um, and there was a sense from some people that there would be a devaluation of qualifications. Hidden in that was actually... Um, a, an, a belief, I think, from people in campus-based teaching institutions that distance education is somehow of lower quality. But I can't go into that here, but that certainly was a feeling I got. So that's the conclusion, because um, I know Jonathan's anxious to move us on. From both Therese and my studies, what we um, came up with was that on some level, there's always going to be compromise in the interests of sustainability of OERs because institutions are particularly at this time in our history, they are concerned about their survival, they're concerned about their income, they're concerned about student numbers with the new fees and so on. So while Apple might seem to be a big corporation with its own corporate agenda, they are providing a platform that is enabling widespread use of OERs and, um, and sustainability. Even small efforts can be successful, and that was what was told to me by many of the people I interviewed in the OERU itself. They said they were participating at the level they were able to, and at some stage in the future they would contribute more. We have to stop there. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you.
frustrating, I know, having to, uh, to stop at uh, such interesting points, but uh, we will press on. Um, now, uh, a, a clutch of fellows looking at student use of, of OER and assessment, Alana Quince, Stylianos, Hatsipanagos, and uh, Nick Pierce. Or at least two of the, the above. <laughs> Good afternoon. Uh, Nick could not really make it today, so uh, I will uh, talk about his, his research, his project, and how it relates to the other two. Um, so this case study was based on the three projects, Elinor's, mine, and Nick's. Uh, the overall kind of context was uh, uh, assessment, OERs, and learning. Um, we made a conscious decision, the decision was to make Elinor's uh, project the core of this case study, with the two other projects uh, feeding the respective findings where appropriate, because we thought has presented a very, very interesting story to tell, a very good case study. However, uh, to start with, uh, we felt it was necessary to uh, scaffold this kind of case study with uh, what's happening overall with e assessment and uh, open educational resources. So I need to go back a bit, very, very briefly, I'm aware of the time, and talk about uh, how learning technologies relate to, to assessment. And there is quite a lot of literature out there, but in practice there seems to be some sort of disappointment because there's a lot of criticism out there on how in practice, e-assessment has been developed. So quite a lot of people still in 2012 talk about how uh, people spend quite a lot of time building uh, multiple choice quest questions, quizzes, and nothing else, and all the other important theoretical advancements in, in how assessment is conceptualized uh, are neglected. So e-assessment is quite important because there are quite a lot of attributes and advantages there. It has to do with uh, helping learners to uh, work with learning outcomes and develop higher order capabilities. Uh, it has to do with making feedback central to the learning process. It has to do with uh, promoting a dialogue about feedback, peer, self-assessment activities. Research has agreed that... Uh, uh, best assessment comes from a collaborative learning experience in a peer review context and also in a reflective context when people engage in self-assessment. Uh, in the context of OERs, uh, that's where my project focused uh, and my project investigation was on, I looked at uh, how e-assessment is conceptualized in the context of OERs. And it started from a generalization, and the literature agrees with that, that e-assessment is probably neglected in the context of OERs. Um, there is a criticism there, a criticism there that uh, the major weakness of some OERs is that uh, they're often transmissive teaching entities. Um, so research in OERs has highlighted the common absence of both formal and informal assessment practices, either formative or summative. Um, so it was interesting when we discussed with Eleanor her uh, case study, which looked at self-assessment 
in the context of uh, OIAS, and uh, a kind of question we asked, and I think we found the answer, as he's going to tell you, is, okay, self-assessment is a prominent feature in the assessment OIAS, but how do we know the perennial question when we talk about assessment? How do we know that the loop, the famous loop by Sadler, is closed and that people have learned something through the assessment process? And Eleanor is going to talk to you about her case study. Thank you. Okay. So, as Stelios says, my, um, Stelianos says, um, my project, which is called Score Hire, um, aimed to look at self-assessment for first-year postgraduate researchers. Um, and I tried to come up with 10 very simple OER um, activities, which first-year postgraduates could go through in order to get a clear understanding of what their skills base was when they started a PhD and then how they could develop those skills through the duration of candidature. Um, the reason I selected self-assessment um, for my project was that I've been working with PGR for a number of years and self-assessment has always been an element that I've struggled with. I've also noticed that in recent years, um, two things have happened. First of all, the postgraduate um, research body has become um, more varied. We're seeing more international students, students from different cultural um, and educational backgrounds. We're also seeing more mature students returning to study to do a PhD after a long period out um, in the world of work where they're coming into the PhD with quite a, a good skills base and a good knowledge, and they're perhaps finding some of the approaches we're taking are a little bit below them, a little bit patronising. Um, and also, I'm seeing more distance learners um, and more part-time students. And again, these students need um, flexibility of learning, and I think that's come through all the projects that have been talked about so far today. Um, and being able to actually have things online for them to do in their own time at a distance is a real bonus. So I started with this, which is the Research and Development Framework. Um, for those of you that don't know, and I haven't already bored you to tears with this, um, the Research and Development Framework is a set of skills that the research councils in the UK hope PhD students will achieve during their time um, as a PhD student. Um, it was created in 2010, and as part of my project, I was interested to know what students actually think of the RDF, and do they actually understand why they're being asked to gain a set of skills um, during candidature. So I selected four skills from the RDF, one from each of the domains, so cognitive abilities, self-management, research management, and communication. I then identified 10 new PGR students, so that's students who just started with me in September 2011. They came from a variety of different backgrounds. Um, and I put them through, first of all, an introductory interview. Then I created some test materials, and I put them through two rounds of observed testing. Then I put the test materials into my VLE at Southampton University, which is where I'm based, um, and asked them to go and do some independent testing. And they did some feedback exercises, and then they had an, an exit interview. I'm going to pick up on two things. Um, those of you that have heard me present before will remember this one. Um, first of all, that in my introductory um, interviews, I made um, quite a big assumption. Um, as I said, I've drawn my volunteers from a variety of different backgrounds in order to highlight a pre-identified issue, which was that although universities all start PhD students at the same point, um, they don't all begin with the same skill set. But I was expecting all of my volunteers to be able to do two things. First of all, to identify what the RDF was, and second, to be able to relate the skills in the RDF to their PhD. Fortunately, I was wrong. 
Um, the reason I expect them to be able to do this is because I use the RDF in my induction talks, and it's also in our handbook for our students when they start. And all of the training that we talk to them about is mapped to the RDF. So I really expected them to have some kind of understanding. But in fact, nine of the volunteers were uncertain as to what the RDF was, um, and most of them as to its value or relevancy. There's also a complete lack of ability, and this came very much through the introductory interviews, um, to be able to relate the skills outlined in the RDF to the process of undertaking a PhD. So although the two things in the eyes of, of Vitae and the RCUK are inextricably linked, for the students embarking on this process, they were not. They were two separate things, almost running in parallel. Um, one of my volunteers said, I'm conscious that training could easily take over. I won't let my research suffer. So it's just like I'm, my thesis is over here, and I must focus on that, and training is just a distraction. Which, of course, is not what we want. Um, so I rethought my project a little, um, sort of refocused it to focus very much on the PhD as a process and to very closely relate the skills that they were going to be building to the process of the PhD. So I created an introduction, eight simple um, activity OER with built-in self-assessment elements and a cumulative self-assessment. It's a sort of closing a loop activity. Um, here's one of my OER. This is the one for communication. And the activity was asking students to compare two posters as seen at a conference. They're put up there like they're at a conference. And to look at the visual aspects um, of the posters and to just comment. And the idea is to get them thinking about the different kinds of audience that you encounter as a PhD student and the different modes of communication that you'll be asked to use. Um, I put the, the sample um, OER I've just shown you, I put that forward for um, the two rounds of observed testing. Uh, I used a control student who's a year three student to kind of demonstrate to me if I was making any assumptions. I also used a face-to-face -face training session for one of the groups first and a face-to-face -face training session for the other group second in order to try and see whether, again, I was making assumptions about what they did know and how they were going to react to these things. Um, my results showed that the group that had the training first um, actually got better results on the self-assessment than those who had the training second. So clearly more contextualization um, was needed to make self-assessment more effective. Um, here's an example of my self-assessment. Um, this is from the communication um, OER that I just showed you. So the students were asked to analyze two posters. They're asked to focus on visual aspects. The self-assessment asks them to award themselves points based on the responses they give. Then there's a set of feedback. Um, and depending on the number of points they get, they're directed to do certain things, whether to undertake more training, whether to perhaps have a go at creating their own poster or putting a poster in for a conference, um, or whether to share their knowledge with other PGR students within the faculty. I'm going to step back now. Okay, right. Okay, so uh, first of all, I think a good experience. Uh, it was for all three of us uh, negotiating how and discussing how our three projects related to each other and exploring commonalities and the, the, the themes that uh, kind of brought them together. Uh, I think there's an imperative there for all three of us that it is important to examine how OER assessment tools can be integrated with other learning teaching resources and whether they are used formatively. This is very important because formative assessment doesn't need to, does not need to be constrained by open educational resources. Uh, in fact, this would be exactly the opposite. Uh, in Nick's context, where he looked at the student experience and sharing of 
of resources. Uh, the evidence was that people are very happy, students are very happy to share resources, and uh, they are very happy to, to use what they have found, the peers and, and the teachers. Um, we, found, we thought that there was an overall constraint, and the consta constraint had to do with digital lit literacies. So, um, in order to uh, get over this kind of problem, people need to develop these digital literacies to benefit from uh, initiatives like OIAS. Uh, finally, using OIAS uh, to explore self-assessment, we thought it was a very valid uh, initiative in the context of open educational resources and because uh, it challenges perceptions of how students view themselves and the skills acquisition that Eleanor was talking about. Thanks for your time. Um, and now our last uh, fellow for the, uh, this last session before um, we break for tea. Um, perhaps surprisingly, um, there's a, there was only one fellow who was, whose project is in this area of copyright and licensing policy. Uh, so she's on her own, but Megan, over to you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, actually, Jonathan gave me this title, uh, and uh, I don't think it's quite the right way round. Well, Copywriting policy. Slavishly. I've, I've copied it slavishly, indeed. <laughs> um, um, so I'll license your policy if you want. Uh, that's me. Um, I want to just reflect for a moment um, on the purpose of the fellowship, which was really thinking about institutions, organisations, and their approach to policy, practice, and rights. Um, but also to think in terms of me and what I would, could do within the school fellowship was really take, for example, um, the case study of Newcastle University, which is where I'm based, um, and think about it in terms of our local short-term and long-term plans because we were going through a process of digital rights management change in relation to thinking about recording lectures. Now, when you record lectures, strange things happen because suddenly it becomes obvious who's using what in their teaching because it's much more accessible to other staff members, to other members of university and so forth. Um, I also wanted to look at making guidance accessible. I was very familiar with the wonderful stuff that David and his colleagues have um, supported through the HTA, through the JISC, um, Nomi Corn uh, has done some wonderful things under the web to rights, JISC Legal, um, and so there were lots and lots of things out there, but in a way they weren't really reaching the target audience. So I wanted to think about how to make the guidance accessible in terms of complex issues of copyright and policy and making those accessible. Actually, what I realised pretty quickly was I wasn't clever enough. Yep. Um, so I do Jonathan completely with that because I can't get my head around the complex issues of copyright policy and consent. Um, and so therefore I had to move swiftly on to item number three, which was the relationship with publishers. Um, <laughs> I'm very lucky because I'm working with Elsevier <laughs> um, I did it, uh, just anecdote, because I, oh, is this, is this being recorded? Yes. <laughs> oh, I'll do it anyway. Um, <laughs> we'll go blah, blah, blah when you say Elsevier. I was on holiday, so this isn't Newcastle talking. I, I did a presentation to their summer conference last Tuesday, and uh, I asked one of the groups, say, there must have been about 100 people there, so it's UK and Northern Europe, the whole of Elsevier's sales and management admin HR sections. Uh, and I asked them, I said, who can speak about um, Creative Commons? What does that mean? And so the managing director put his hand up and said, I will. I said, okay, define that for me. And, and he, he gave me a definition.
question. I went, and I had several choices. I could have said, that's close. And actually, I said, that's wrong. And <laughs> there was a little round of applause out there in, in the audience. Anyway, the MD left on Friday. Not sure it was my fault. Okay. Um, I, I gather he's gone to Pearson, actually, so that's not, 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 not a bad move. Okay, so working international agreements. This is what I felt would be the solution to my issues with um, particularly copyright um, uh, copyright issues when people, ordinary people try to understand what a license says. You know, I went to the National Gallery website and I put in um, all the details and I read it and I thought, oh, this is quite good. So you can use images from old masters in your teaching. So that's what the first half of the information says. But as you read down, it gets more and more complicated. And by the end of it, you just don't know what they're saying. So I wrote to them and asked and the reply came back and said, as long as it's for individual academics paying for fees in their own right and it's non-commercial... And so, therefore, you're not allowed to use old master's works from the National Gallery in a royalty-free context if there's a fee being charged. So I wrote back an obvious question and said, what about higher education fees? Does that count? Not a sound back from them. Not a sound. So I want to... Well, actually, before I show you this slide, because... Um, some people here have heard me speak recently because I feel like I've been on the stage far too often in the school project, but it's been a, a wonderful uh, opportunity. So there's quite a lot that's happened that you can download either off the school website in terms of videos that they've taken or from Cambridge 2012. So I don't want to go into the detail, but what we can say is that we've had um, stakeholder meetings with publishers, with senior managers. I've looked at... Um, a, policy, a literature review, quite a detailed literature review, which will go out of date fast. Um, I've worked with Naomi Korn, I've worked with other people in the, in the legal side. Um, we've done a student app day where we've taken content from publishers in an electronic environment, smashed it together and got new products out of it. And that's really um, wound Elsevier up because I think they've changed their thinking about where they were going as a company. Um, so with all that in mind, what we've concluded is this. Can we ask the question, can we establish a national license, principles or rules for third-party content to be used in OERs? Okay? Because we want to use published works. We don't want to ignore it. It's an important body of work. Okay? So, what would the rules be? And this is what we have as a very much a draft way forward. Every resource on a case-by-case -case basis. And we're going to have to discuss that. Up to ten natural or derived things, e.g. images. So that means use it in its raw form, or do what you like with it. Crop it, colour it, change it, put something else on it. Um, for any purpose, including openly licensed. So ten things per teaching. Ten's good, yeah? Ten would be good. Twenty would be better. Ten is good. Because obviously we don't want to harm the income of the people who provide this information by way of their, their work as authors or their work as editors. Um, they did... The publishers would like downgraded quality of images, text, and sound. So they want it to be lower quality than you would pay for if you, if you were paying for it. They want permission sought for use and reuse and full attribution given to resources. So that means if you use it, you can put on it used with permission. But of course, you need to get that permission and you need to get it fast because you can be teaching tomorrow and you need to know that you can use that resource. Because if they come back and say no, and it's already been videoed, you're in trouble. Okay? So we, we wanted to think about how the permission would be allocated. So therefore, with that item and the case-by-case -case basis, we, we need a system that does this on a national basis. So I'm going to come back to that in a second. 
Um, the publishers wanted um, embedded materials to be marked their own license. So you've got an OER, and notice that I've got my license on this. Um, I'm employed by Newcastle University. If you've got an employer, that's who owns your copyright, unless stated otherwise. Um, and so therefore, I'm very secondary, but this is made available as a CCBY. I embed publishers' works in my CC PowerPoint slides and my other files. I embed published works, and I make it very clear by attributing them. I make sure I attribute them, and I make sure it's clear that they are used either with permission or not. But then I also include a disclaimer, and I've got a disclaimer on these slides, um, which I'll show you at the end. So, embedded materials marked, and notification, this is badly worded, I'll improve this at some point, but effectively what publishers want is to know where you've used their stuff, because they may have secondary use for it, or be able to say, look, this is how somebody's used our, their, our book and their teaching. So... I'm pretty encouraged by this because I think it's a much stronger way forward than some of the other existing guidelines. So, for example, there is, you can already use two images out of a journal in your teaching without seeking permission. But if you do have to seek permission, it can take a long time and it's very costly. So the consultant we used, um, whose name is Hugh Look, he describes this as being the cost of the transaction. You asking, them replying, and then coming to an understanding of exactly what you've agreed Okay, so this is what it looks like, the national case-by-case -case basis. Um, Dan's gone away to program this. Um, but essentially what you've got is um, Elsevier content, or content in general, that has been smashed into little bits. You've got images, you've got paragraphs, you've got sections. You haven't got pages, because pages don't exist in a digital world. Elsevier keeps saying, could we have a micropayment scheme that, you know, people pay a penny a page? Well, what's a page? Okay, so... The Elsevier resources in the top corner, you've got an API on that. Um, so you want a really big database, you want it fast, and you want it to have all of their content in it. You don't want to be given book A, but not book B. You want all the books. Um, then you need some sort of um, input so that there's a credit system, so that when you're downloading or accessing stuff, it knows who you are. And also that if you're using things with permission, uh, that, that there's no charge for some items that may be that there's a micropayment scheme built into that. Micropayments, they said it was too hard. Micropayments is not too hard. What is hard is deducting one credit off if you do actually access something. Okay, but you can go and pay anyway. You can use your mobile phone to pay for a, for a credit account. So we've got permissions requests. We've got purpose. Um, Elsevier publishers retain the permission system. They find out from this system, who's using what, where. It's instantaneous, so if your criteria are relatively straightforward, you'll get an instant decision to say, yes, you can use this. Or no, you can't, or it's a penny payment. And I'm, I'm using the word penny just to try and get it into people's psyche, that these are the target prices we should be asking for, not 50p or a pound. Okay, and then there's some statistics, um, information that would come out of that, marketing data, activity data, audit, licensing agreements, digital rights management, and if institutions wanted, they could also find out where their staff were accessing library materials that they were using in teaching, published works they were using in teaching. That would be very in, um, valuable for institutions because at the moment they haven't got a clue. There's at least one institution who has said um, they've just paid, one of the publishers, they just paid them a large amount of money not to look on their VLE, which I think is class. But uh, if, if my, my PVC would faint if somebody showed up saying, can we have a poke around your VLE and see where our stuff is. Okay, so that's it. That's my attribution and disclaimer. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you.
you very much uh, to all of you. You have been terrific on timekeeping because we are precisely where we should be. Now, if every, all fellows who've spoken could come and sit at the frontier now, please. Uh, you may need to bring a chair because there aren't quite enough. Um, anyone with a question, just raise your hand and, and, and Keith with the microphone on the stick will come and hold it somewhere in your vicinity uh, and that way we capture everything. There you have them. Questions. <laughs> Okay, let's start with Tony. Can I ask a question of Therese first? Um, Which one? Therese. Okay. <laughs> um, love the presentation on iTunes, you. Um, I thought I'd heard from you earlier this year that South Africa couldn't get iTunes, you. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yes, we visited South Africa a few weeks ago, and um, someone asked... Why can't we get it? So actually, I emailed my contact at Apple right away to ask that question. I have to say, I didn't get an answer. Um, I'm not on terribly first-name basis with this person, so I didn't get an answer. But my understanding of the situation is um, that they're trying to do it. They're actually using it in an informal way. So it's not like they don't have access to the technology. They do but somehow they just don't have a site yet. To be honest, that's all I know about it. In general, the way it works is the university asks Apple for a site, and Apple basically gives it to you. So um, I don't know why that hasn't happened for them, to be honest. So. I've got another question about iTunes U. Um, if you're a big institution, it's quite easy to get an iTunes U account, but if you're small, it's quite tricky because you have to um, add a lot of content to actually have an account. Um, I found that quite tricky. We're quite a small um, mm. institution, and... Um, it wasn't viable to us to have an iTunes use account because we don't have that much content to add into it. Can I ask when you checked on that? When is, when is it that you asked about that? That was last year. Okay. I think they've changed. Right, because, okay. yes, when I ch when, last time I talked with them was last year, and they said you need 150 pieces to launch. Yeah, yeah. Um, however, I saw a, a college in, um, uh, up near Tyneside that launched with about 50 pieces, and then I saw mm -hmm. Cedar School of Excellence. Uh, yeah, Cedar School of Excellence in Scotland that launched with 10. Oh, okay. So I think they've changed. All right, okay. I'll look into it again. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. The audience, because you've all raised this idea, or most of you, about digital literacy as a kind of barrier. And I'm interested to know in what aspect did you see that as a barrier, in what way, what needs to change in this day where technology is used main, you know, in the classroom, in universities? Uh, I think there is an overall issue about searching uh, um, because it has, uh, there is an overall issue about sustainability and discover, discoverability of open educational resources. The other aspect of digital literacy, which I think is very, very, uh, uh, very important, is the ability of, uh, of, of the academics, or the ability of the tutors, the practitioners, and students as well, to evaluate open educational resources. So um, familiarization with some key uh, schemes or ski evaluation kind of uh, methods to help them to, to, do, to, to reach to a, a decent conclusion about what constitutes a good open, open, open educational resource for their context, for their, for their circumstances, I think is part of this literacy we were discussing before. I don't know if I 
Oh, no, in the work that I um, did, there was uh, the theme of kind of fitness for purpose that um, came up again and again. And, and of course, that's something that you sort of hear in a lot of different contexts. But, um, but I, I think much as we talk about um, other kinds of uh, literacies um, and being aware of why you know, you need to you need to be at a, a particular ability uh, in terms of language to hold a, a, a conversation, an informal conversation. Um, and I think um, digital literacies are moving in that direction as well. You need to have enough literacy, enough digital literacy, to be able to do what you need to do, rather than a bank of skills that um, range from you know I can do sort of uh, advanced stuff with Photoshop um, right through to um, you know, I can I can manipulate data in in an Excel spreadsheet, um, and certainly with the academics that, that I worked with, who were who were looking for and who were who classed themselves as quite digitally literate, um, there were things that were still big technological barriers for them in terms of uh, you know, Flash is the biggest one, um, right? So there, there were all these Flash resources that um, academics just went, I, yeah, I'm not a Flash programmer, I don't know what to do with that, um, and so I'll walk away from that rather than trying to engage with it. Um, so that's quite interesting. I'd, I'd say um, the, the, the key thing for institutions is to um, build the communities of practice and support networks. And a bit to what I was saying about having all elements in there and having your experts with your novice, your self-declared um, uh, unaware person um, and trying to bring those together. And I think Again, we, we, maybe we're not too good at that. You know, we're, good, we're good in the social sense of building the communities, but, but what we're doing within institutions and universities where actually a lot of people are used to uh, sort of learning in that social sphere. And in a way, I think institutions still do need to build that, so that social sphere within their infrastructures. Um, and at the University Arts, we were quite fortunate because we've been involved in the UK OER programme 2 and 3, um, what we didn't have there was that follow-on support system. So we were extra lucky when we were also involved in the Digital Literacies Programme. Because in a way, what that's doing now is, is addressing that precise issue of we've got the infrastructure now, how do we support it and progress it? In terms of the uh, content that's been used, because people have developed content, so it's a bit like a a teacher gives another teacher some, you know, some resource to use. You have to internalise that. You have to learn about that. So I wonder if it's if it is a digital literacy concern or if it's a kind of contextualisation concern, which perhaps the OER could think about in terms of, you know, when you say you're delivering a piece of um, resource content, in what kind of practice it's meant to be used in, and making that sort of framework clearer. Do you see that as part of the role for for OER? Um, because that, that translation is, is quite complex. You know, you, um, it doesn't have to be across domains. It can be within a, within a domain. Um, you mentioned, I can't, sorry, I can't remember who the speaker was about, uh, new teachers that couldn't take on the OER. And I wonder if more of that is because actually, that cognitively, they were already taking on quite a new task as was, that really anything else, wouldn't have mattered what it was, even if it was the most appropriate thing. It's quite challenging to have that space to think about. So is there more that's needed to be done from an OER point of view to enable that 
um, process of contextualization to include that into good teaching practices? Or is it purely a digital literacy? No, Sorry, Barry. I, I think following on from our experiences of, of the digital literacy pro program we're involved in, is that it, there's multiple digital literacies, and obviously one of those digital literacies is the institutional digital literacy, you know, how, it, how it's addressing that. And, and with that comes cultural change, and I think that's your difficult bit. And if you can get the institution to start addressing its digital, which there's a, a student um, handbook that's just been released actually about digital integration and technologies, and I think yeah, the institution really needs to embed it, and and then the real work begins in in, in that handheld, in that support, that uh, introducing what OER is and the practice and how you embed that into practice, how useful it is. So yeah, I think there's there's there's, there's quite a, a few levels uh, to address. Okay, another question. You're gasping for tea. Maybe Chris, yeah. With a sort of answer um, to your question. Because I, I thought Ming actually possibly had an answer to your question. Because I think her framework is quite useful in, in showing the variety of levels at which OER can be used. And when you're talking about recontextualization, it depends where and how you're using it. So I think it is a relative answer to that. I don't know whether Ming has anything to say about um, that. Well, um, I, I don't really think I have uh, too much more to add on what Chris and other people have said. What I found from my project is uh, actually the aspect related to uh, digital literacy levels. So for instance, uh, when it comes to multiple reusing multi multimedia OERs and people, some people might find it uh, more difficult to do. So that's uh, one aspect of uh, related to digital literacy skills. And some other skills such as uh, how to address uh, accessibility issues, uh, which an NS project has focused on. So for instance, how to make the OER in appropriate size and formats and to make them more reusable and repurposable for other people. So I think that's pretty much uh, what I found from my project and maybe I don't know, um, Anna wants to add something on that? Accessibility? I, mean, I guess when talking about digital literacies and, and accessibility what kept cropping up was the, the issue of awareness and sort of sensitizing people uh, to accessibility as as an issue that needs to be considered and incorporated into the workflow, so so this is why I was I was looking at uh, possibly some some parallels with copyright uh, because accessibility is uh, I mean quite a complex issue and just as digital literacy it's it's not just a matter of uh, uh, technical skills uh, it's it's also a matter of uh, awareness uh, and and it's both the why uh, and the how so so maybe that's uh, that's where the links uh, could be 
uh, and it would also be uh, really interesting to look at the intersections of uh, digital literacies and, and open educational resources and the, and the various frameworks that, that underpin it. I think I could add to it. I think that at the moment, you know, if you have the OER as a term, mm. uh, we all talk about OER, and it includes so many different resources, from images, really, to very complex m modules that one could reuse. So actually, when we did these studies into the reuse, we are still asking the general question about reusing OER. I think that we are just in early stages, and we have to have a look at the different types of OER, really, and it also really depends on the discipline you're in, because for somebody who is already producing some flash materials, that's not a problem to repurpose them, but obviously for the academics that are, that they, they are, that are specialists in a different discipline, uh, we shouldn't really expect them to be technologically savvy in a way to take a flash animation and to change it into something completely else, so it's probably where they need some support or a kind of offload, offloading into, into support services. So I think just in the early stages, and we have to look into different types of OER really to see what works in, in what contexts. Uh, okay, one, one quick question, and then we'll break the tea. Yeah, I'll come in. I think, speaking as a librarian, I've also got you know, that hat on. Um, I think one other area that can help with contextualization is the metadata. And if there is some sort of information with the OER to say, this is how it was used, this is how it was successful, these are some other contexts you might want to try it in. If you do reuse it, add to that metadata to say, actually, I used it completely differently and it was great and, you know, with these students. So I think there's that aspect that needs to be sort of looked at as well. Right. Thank you very much. And... and Thank you uh, to all of our presenters uh, from this morning again. Oh, from this afternoon, I mean the first <laughs> session this afternoon. Um, just want to say one thing. Um, around your necks, those of you that have uh, discovered these, uh, you have a USB stick uh, present from the Higher Education Academy. And on it, uh, the collection to date of open education case studies that the Academy has, has commissioned. And I'm delighted to say there will be a further set of case studies um, uh, published in the autumn, which will contain the experiences that you've been hearing from this afternoon and the ones that you're about to hear uh, from school fellows. So, so keep, a, keep a note, keep a lookout of the, the Academy uh, website for when they're, they're published uh, because uh, they're a good way to find out more. And before that, uh, you will be able to, to access further information also from the end of project reports from SCORE fellows, which you can find from the SCORE website. So, 20-minute tea break now. Tea is opposite. There are interesting posters around the room, so do, do feel free to bring your tea back in here and, and look at them.